Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about First and Second Peter. Peter is the man who was with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was right there at Gethsemane. Remember, he was the leader of the Jerusalem Council back in Acts 15. And Peter was the president of the church. He's a big deal in church history, but we don't have a ton of his stuff. Peter is going to be killed in Rome by Nero in the 60s AD, somewhere in that time period. So Bryce, when you look at this, what are some things that you want to make sure that you cover when you're teaching a class? So when you do Paul, you need to understand that he's probably answering a specific question from a specific group. He's dealing with a local issue. In Peter's epistle, we don't really see that. He's not responding to the saints in this area or that area. He's not dealing with local challenges. He's dealing with, as the president of the church should, a global church, a broad range of people. And for the most part, he knows they're struggling. He knows they're being afflicted, that this is a tough time for the church. Um, There's growth, and yet there's opposition, and there seems to be division as well. And So a lot of what Peter's going to do is to step back and give a broader perspective from the president of the church to say, I recognize that trial is hurtful, but here are some of the positives and the reasons for trial. And then he's also going to focus on what we need to be. Watch for that word, be, and different forms of the verb. What are we and what should we be? That's a lot that comes from Peter. For example, that famous one, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. So we need to be that. We need to be holy. And that's appropriate. I love that from a president of the church who's saying, you know what, it's not so much what we're doing, it's what we are becoming that is critical. So hang on in your trials, hang on in those tough moments, and become what God wants us to become. Now, that being said, there is a beautiful declaration of doctrine here, appropriate for a president of the church. You didn't see that so much in Paul, where Paul's kind of an apostolic witness of truth And Peter now is a declaration of doctrine, and this is where we go definitively that sprung board us into section 138 about Jesus visiting the spirit world. Peter is going to declare that Jesus preached the gospel in the spirit world. You don't see that in the gospels where Jesus was still alive or even shortly after his resurrection. He never says, hey, I went into the spirit world to preach to the spirits of the dead. And so this is clearly a revelation to the president of the church after the fact, and now Peter's declaring that. And he does it over multiple chapters, not just a single reference in one chapter. And so this is a beautiful example of what we should receive from the leading officer of the church. That's what I see going on in First and Second Peter, Mike. I like that.
Now, it's possible that Peter had some help with the writing. You see, in the first letter, he gives a shout out to Silas for helping him out. He says, basically, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you. That's 1 Peter 5.12. But in the second letter, he doesn't tell us who assisted him. So both of the letters are written in Greek, but they have different styles, they have different vocabularies, themes, and they're even organized differently. So some folks think that Peter might have given the go-ahead to some scribes to take his words and his ideas and put the finishing touches on them for both of these letters, meaning that you know he was a guy who spoke Aramaic, he came from Galilee, a lot of people look at him as maybe less educated as the way the the Greek is reflected in these letters. I don't know. But perhaps there were different scribes that put these together. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that these letters come from his ideas and his teachings, but that they weren't textualized till the second century. And that's uh, Marcus Borg and other scholars kind of look at this and say that first and second Peter really are some of the last things that are circulated in early Christian history. Now, I really don't know, but some of the things that are being addressed in these letters are dealing with some of the problems in the late first and early second centuries. So with that general overview of who Peter is and kind of the discussion regarding authorship, let's get into first Peter chapter one. So in the very first verse, Peter says he's writing to the strangers scattered throughout the land, to the strangers. I think he's kind of writing to those who are outnumbered, those who are kind of on the smaller end of the numbers, given the size of the enemy and the opposition. He says, to the strangers. And then in verse 7, he's talking about, I know you're suffering. I know that your faith is on trial. Um, on other places, Peter will say things like being buffeted or suffering for righteousness' sake. Um, later in chapter 4, he'll say, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So he's writing to people who seem to be struggling with challenges and opposition for their faith. But he says from the very beginning, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is more beneficial than you realize. Precious metals are always fired up so that all the dross is removed, and even those perish. So understand that any refinement, any trial that improves your faith and helps you become, this is a good thing. It's Joseph Smith in in Liberty Jail. All these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. So that's kind of how he begins that epistle is, I know you're hurting, but I know that good is coming from this. And it already has. I love what he does in verse 8, speaking of the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I think he's tipping his hat to those who weren't with Jesus in his ministry and yet believe. 
And this is where I connect with Peter. I hear Peter saying to me, Bryce, I was with him. I know him. But man, blessed are you way into the future who wasn't with him. You didn't see the miracles that I saw. You weren't with him when he rose the dead as I was. You weren't in the boat when he calmed the sea as I was, and yet you still believe. Now, that means something is significantly happening in your life, that you have tremendous faith. So even though your faith is being tried, look at what it's accomplished. You believe without having even seen and blessed are you. Beautiful beginning to a people that seem to be struggling. That's good. I think one of the overall themes in this chapter is this idea that, hey, we're strangers, these people scattered throughout the land, that's verse one, and yet, according to the foreknowledge of God, we have an inheritance, that's verse four. But because we have an inheritance and because we're strangers, we have to go through heaviness or manifold temptations. That's verse six. We have to go through the challenges of this life. Verse 14, we have to be as obedient children. So there's this struggle. And so in the midst of this, starting in verse 10, there's this message about searching to understand the Messiah. Look what it says. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look upon. Now that, the English there can be kind of difficult, but one of the things that's been emphasized here is that the prophets of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible saw the Messiah. They saw the Son of Man. They knew that he would come, but even the angels didn't understand when that time would come. You see, according to some Jewish traditions, some secrets were so important that God kept them even from the angels until the end time. That's according to Jewish tradition. The early Christian community were on this quest. They wanted to seek out the ancient prophecies that foretold of the Messiah. Now, we talked about this back towards the end of the Savior's life in the Gospels, when we gave an overview of Sigmund Mowinkel's book, He That Cometh. For about a hundred pages in that book, Sigmund Mowinkel goes through the Son of Man prophecies that were scattered throughout the Hebrew Bible and in Jewish tradition. Many of the texts regarding the Son of Man and the traditions didn't make it into the canonized text of either the Hebrew Scriptures or even some of the, the New Testament. But these Son of Man prophecies were scattered throughout the tradition that the Jews were aware of, and the early Christian community scoured these traditions. They searched the Hebrew Bible looking for prophecies of the Messiah. And so as they did, what they did was they reread their Hebrew Bible with their understanding of who Jesus was. And then as they did this, the early Christians interwove the tapestry of Israelite history 
with the life and ministry of Jesus. And by doing this, they strategically drew connections between the prophetic promises of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and their perceived realization as to who Jesus was. And as they did this, they wove a mosaic that depicted the fulfillment of the divine prophecies in the mission and life of Jesus. And this new understanding became known as the New Testament. They took their writings, their letters, and they began to see the scriptures with new eyes. And the letters of Paul and many of the things circulating in the first century were not necessarily known as scripture. I don't even know if Paul knew that his letters would one day become scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. To these New Testament authors, they understood Scripture as the Hebrew Bible. Now, In my opinion, there wasn't even a canonized version of the Hebrew Bible yet. This idea of a closed canon, even in Jewish society, was a movable target. If you go to Qumran, which is a group of Jews that lived outside of Jerusalem and collected texts, they had many texts that are not part of the canonized version of the Hebrew Bible. Scripture meant the words of the prophets. You know, Mike, I was fascinated one time I was reading after Nephi returns back with the brass plates, Lehi just devours them as if he'd never had a chance to do that yet. Why would he dive into them with such intensity if he had a copy of the scriptures back at home? The brass plates were like the first time he was seeing them. That seems to be how First Nephi kind of presents it, that this is the first time that Lehi really had a chance to tear through the canon, that there was a collection, but he didn't have access to it. So the common person doesn't seem to have had a collection of all the writings. Now, Lehi was very familiar with the prophecies of Jeremiah. That's what would have been handed out in his day, but he didn't seem to have a collection of all the scriptures as accessible as we have it today. That really struck me one time as I read First Nephi after they get back with the plates. Yeah, I think that's right on. I think that even if you went to synagogue in Jesus's day, a synagogue in one location might not have a copy of a text that another synagogue would have. And we see this in early Christianity too, where some Christian churches had access to some of the writings of the New Testament authors, but not all of them. And so this quest for orthodoxy, this quest for establishing a canon or a rule took a period of centuries. It took some time. And so it wasn't really until the end of the fourth century that Christians got together and decided what was to be canon. I've talked about this before with the Festal Letter of Athanasius written in the fourth century. That's the first time we have the suggested 27 books of the New Testament, the 27 that we have. Uh, It it was really a a thing that they were trying to understand, trying to figure out. But back to this idea in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, they're searching, they're inquiring the prophets because 
They're looking to understand the Messiah. To me, the center of this whole chapter, chapter one, is Jesus. Jesus is the center, and who are we in relation to him? Well, we're to be redeemed through him. Notice what it says, through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. That's verse two. To an inheritance incorruptible. That's verse four. He was sent down from heaven. That's verse 12. And because of this, like Bryce talked about in verse 16, we are commanded to genesthe, which is to become. We are to become holy. I love the English translation, be ye holy, for I am holy. I think another way to to think of this is we are to become holy. I like that in connection with Moroni 10. Now, I I totally believe this. I don't totally understand it. But Moroni 10 says, verse 32, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then ye are sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that ye become holy without spot. That's a promise. To me, I think the focus is I love God. And if I'm focused on that, if if that's my focus, the promise is he will take me home. And I believe that promise applies to me and it applies to you. Although I totally don't understand it, I see it operative in my life. Now, Mike, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, notice how the whole chapter turns on verse 13. After speaking about Jesus and faith and finding Christ and searching for him, everything turns with the word wherefore. Right there, the the tone changes, the direction changes. So we have a Savior. We have a Redeemer. We found him in the Scriptures. Wherefore. Now Peter starts his list of B's. B, not do's. That's very different. Be something because of Jesus, rather than doing something. So be sober is his first one. And be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought. And verse 16, I think this is the classic one. I think this is what Peter's epistle is all about. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, I think we need to add a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants. In section 60, Jesus says, I am able to make you holy. And there's the idea is I don't, I'm not going to turn myself into a holy person. Being holy requires that I partner with Christ and he makes me holy. For I am able to make you holy. So be different. Be holy. And implied in all of that are the to-dos. Let go of everything that's making you unholy. Let go of everything telestial. Get out of the telestial room. Be holy. Then in the rest of the chapter, he kind of clarifies what a holy person does and how a holy person gets there by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. 
we do it by, verse 22, purifying your souls. What purification means is you are removing the unholy elements, the impure elements. And one of the other ways we do that, verse 22, see that ye love one another with a pure love. See that emphasis on what the love is, not what the love does? Love one another with a pure heart, fervently, and then another be verb, being born again. Let the old man die. Let the telestial part of you die. Let the terrestrial part of you die and be holy. Now in chapter 2, he's going to get into a little bit more specifics and some of the obstacles of being holy. And again, we're back to Jesus. Jesus as a living stone and as the cornerstone built on the house. So we find this idea back in the Old Testament. He's going to quote Isaiah about that Jesus is the chief cornerstone that became an obstacle. But I like how both Paul and Peter are kind of fixed on this idea that we are building a temple, that my life is a temple that I'm building. And so picking up that idea of what we're supposed to be, in verse 1 we get the lay aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. That's not what we're supposed to be. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. So this idea of becoming, drink the milk of the word and grow thereby. Now he gets into this idea of the building and stones and the structure. If it so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. If you're going to follow Jesus, understand that he was a living stone and that you're going to build a living building. We, like Jesus, need to build up a spiritual house. That's verse 5. We are building a kingdom. We're building Zion. My life is a living building, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Now, Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, there are some challenges that come with that. So later on in verse 6, he says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Now, I need to, like Zion, have a chief cornerstone. And that chief cornerstone needs to be the Savior. Unto you, therefore, verse 7, which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ. If he is not the cornerstone of your building, he is going to become a stumbling block. You can't hide 
from Jesus. You can't hide from who he is and what he is and what he's done. Either you embrace that or you're going to struggle with it. The Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants, you either repent or you suffer for yourself. You either embrace Christ or you will go to your own place, a kingdom that you've made for you because you can't have one of Christ's. Now, I know that's a little harsh, but to us, he's saying, do you see the essential reason why Christ needs to be the chief cornerstone of your spiritual building? Now, the reason we have to be different is because of what we are. We can't save a world unless we're standing on a higher plane than that world. And so build a house that becomes, verse 9 of chapter 2, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then my favorite phrase from Peter, a peculiar people. We are to be a peculiar people. We're supposed to be different, odd even, noticeable, because I don't do what everyone does. I'm not going down the broad path that everyone goes down. I am supposed to be a city set on a hill that people notice. I am to build a spiritual house with Jesus as a cornerstone that in a righteous way gathers attention. So people can see that I'm different. One of my favorite moments in the Book of Mormon is after Ammon is such a kind, good, loyal friend to Lamoni. Lamoni finally says to him, who are you? He noticed that he was different. So is that going to make us odd in the world? Yes. Verse 11, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. We are not at home in this celestial world. This isn't our home. Our home is in heaven. And we're trying to turn this celestial earth into a heaven, which it will eventually become. But for the time being, as long as this earth is a celestial world, we are strangers and pilgrims because we are a peculiar people, because Jesus is our cornerstone, and we're supposed to be different and not feel at home on this planet. Bryce, I got to geek out on chapter two really quick. I don't know if I'm just reading it weird, so just bear with me. But in the first temple, they did eat in the second room. In the, in the temples today where we make the five covenants, we're not eating in that room, but they did anciently. So just knowing that, remember also that in the Holy of Holies, it was on top of the rock and there was a tree in there in the first temple. Just remember that. So look in verse two. We're babes, we're, we're drinking milk, we're tasting it, so we're moving towards God. We're coming to the stone, verse 4. 
we are lively stones. And I think this is kind of a play on Peter's name, which means stone or rock. So maybe we're playing with that. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. But notice we're coming towards the Lord and many of the covenants that we actually make in the temple are in there. There's this mention of priesthood that we have to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's verse 5. Remember 3 Nephi 9 verse 20 where Jesus says we're not doing blood sacrifices anymore. We're doing spiritual sacrifices. And what is it? The sacrifice is me, a broken heart and contrite spirit. So I'm offering a sacrifice in that second room. I'm going towards the stone. That's verse 6. Now it's called cornerstone. Now, that word corner can also mean a, a, a stone in a secret place. It doesn't necessarily have to be corner, but I think corner is good. We're moving towards this stone. And notice, to those that don't believe, verse 8, Jesus is a stone of stumbling or offense. And why is this? I think part of it is that idea of his word divides. It can offend or it can bless. Notice verse 9 a chosen generation of peculiar people, as you've discussed. Like, we're supposed to be different, and the temple is different. We're supposed to be different. We make covenants that make us different. And so what do we put aside? Verse 11, we put aside those things that keep us from keeping the law of chastity. We abstain from fleshly lusts. And then notice, we're to watch our conversation. That's verse 12. And that ties into verse 17, to loving the brotherhood. And then verse 20, to be patient people that suffer the things that the world inflicts upon us so that we come towards Jesus. He suffered on the tree. That's verse 24. So what do we do? We move towards the tree. We return unto the bishop and the shepherd of our souls. The final verse, verse 25, is coming towards him that this returning. And many of the covenants that we actually make in the temple are in there. We've got the law of chastity. We have the law of the gospel, how we speak. We have the law of sacrifice in verse 5, perhaps. We have the eating in the second room. Now today in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we eat the sacrament. We partake of that in church. But anciently, they certainly did eat in that second room. So I throw this out there as a possible way to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 liturgically. And you'll note that in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 18 or so are household codes, how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act towards each other, our responsibilities towards the state. So there's that balance, and Peter's adjusting to that, and he's recognizing that we need to be a peculiar people, but we also need to live in the culture and in the society where we do live. So watch him go to these codes and say, be subject to the codes of the culture around you. Back then, back in Peter's day, the folks who were considered high class believed that the way you ran your household was kind of a reflection of how a city should be governed. So they mixed the ideas of being a good family member with that of being a good citizen. And philosophers, especially the followers of Stoicism and other similar schools of thought, use these household codes to explain 
how to treat others properly. It was kind of like a guidebook for being a good person and having the right relationships with everyone around you. And so what's interesting here is that even Jewish folks and other religious groups that were often looked down upon sometimes adopted these household codes. By doing that, they were showing everyone else that they also believed in and supported the same values that the Romans held dear. It was their way of fitting in and combating the persecutions that they faced and showing others that they were just as much a part of society as anybody else. And so in that context, we have this counsel here. Notice what it says. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme or the governor's. And so submitting to the state is definitely being taught here in First Peter. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, that script is going to be flipped. And the author of Revelation is going to say, hey, we don't want to follow what they're doing. We don't want to submit. But a lot of times the way it's written is it's written in code. So those that have eyes to see can see it. And that's why the book of Revelation, in my opinion, is written in the way it is. It's kind of a subtle message to those who are listening. It's written in a way that you have to have eyes to see it to understand it. And it does kind of thumb the nose at Rome, but it does it in uh, veiled language, I think is probably another way to say it. But here it's very direct that they're to submit. And then we have this verse, which is troubling, and we've talked about this before, verse 18, the servants or the, the slaves are to be subject to their masters with all fear. We've already talked about this idea of how uh, the Christian writers discussed slavery. Bryce and I are not fans of slavery. We certainly do not advocate it. But um, slavery was a very real part of the Roman Empire. And now, how much is Peter going to get accomplished if he comes off as an enemy to Rome and he takes on Rome? Now, there's a time and a place to do that, but not as the church is growing. So Peter is acknowledging that this is the world we live in with Rome here. So let's do our part to be subject to Rome as we do what we can to change the world and prepare it for Jesus. I think that's it. It even says in verse 17 to fear God and honor the king. Now you can just see the patriots in <laughs> in the 1770s in America reading this saying, yeah, we're probably not going to follow that one. But just know that when you are, like you say, Bryce, you're this little teeny group and there's this massive empire, you've got to do what you can to get along. And so at the end of the day, I love the Articles of Faith, which just basically say, we believe in being subject to the powers that be. And, and there it is in verse 17. And notice, Mike, that what Peter says next is related to that. You're going to be buffeted for your righteous acts. And one of the qualities of a disciple is that you can take that with patience. So Peter says, and you'll hear apostles like Neil A. Maxwell quoting this a great deal, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. This is making you that peculiar people that we need to be. We don't revile back when we are buffeted for our righteousness. Now, we could get defensive. All of those things we've talked about not being guilty of the second offense come to mind. 
We don't revile back when we are buffeted for our good deeds. I think we all accept being buffeted for our faults. Yes, I did that. But when I didn't do it and I'm buffeted, do I revile back? Or do I bear it patiently? So do you see how that flows right out of be subject to kings? And yes, occasionally you're going to be buffeted for your good deeds. Bear that patiently. That's part of what makes us a peculiar nation. He's going to pick that idea up in in chapter 3 where he says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing but contrary-wise blessing. That's that whole idea. That's the quality of being a peculiar people, that I don't rail for being railed on. So connect that with chapter 3, verse 9. I think that's important counsel, but I think our natures, our natural inclination is like, no, I'm not going to take that. And I think Peter is saying, yeah, you got to go against that. Now, before we leave chapter two, I want to geek out on a couple more things. Uh, one of them is Peter is actually quoting the servant song of Isaiah 53 in here. It's in First Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. Because Christ suffered for us, he's quoting Isaiah 53, 4. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 22 of First Peter, he says that Jesus did no sin, neither was there guile. And Isaiah 53 verse 9 says... He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Isaiah 53 verse 7 reads, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And Isaiah 53, 5 reads, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then finally, 1 Peter two twenty five reads, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd. And Isaiah 53, verse 5 reads, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. And so in my reading here, Peter is reading Isaiah 53 with a lens that sees Jesus. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the servant song in Isaiah 53. And I think that's how we need to read our Old Testament. We need to look at it and see the types that point us to Jesus. Now, I have to geek out on this, verse 24, that Jesus bear our sins in his own body on the tree. You see, the tree or the world tree is a symbol that's throughout many different cultures. According to some tradition, when he left the Garden of Eden, Adam retained a couple of items. One was a garment of light, which symbolized his priestly duties, And it was replaced by a garment of skins that would shield him from the adversities of the material world. But secondly, Adam walked out of the garden with a branch of the tree of life, according to tradition, which he utilized as his royal scepter. These two artifacts that Adam walked out of the garden with were symbols of his 
priest status, his priestly status, and his status as a king. Wilfred Griggs wrote this. He says, The tree of life was an enduring symbol in the ancient world, possibly spreading through intercultural contacts. It appeared in Mesopotamia, Egypt, Palestine, Greece, and elsewhere with virtually the same significant characteristics. This symbol of eternal life, however, could accurately point only to Jesus Christ, as the New Testament writers and early Christians realized. This is a sacred symbol. The association between the tree of life and kingship in antiquity is evident in various cultures. The tree of life is often regarded as a symbol of immortality, abundance, and wisdom, attributes that are closely associated with the authority and power of kings. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, like Assyria and Babylon, the tree of life was depicted in royal art and iconography as a symbol of divine protection and kingship. In the Hebrew Bible, the tree of life appears as a prominent motif in the book of Proverbs and is associated with wisdom, understanding, and righteousness. And we talked about that back when we did Proverbs chapter 8, but it also, remember, ties into 1 Nephi, the preeminent vision the main vision of First Nephi is we're going towards the tree, and that tree is a symbol of the love of God, which is a multivalent symbol. And then Wilfred Griggs notes that even in Hindu mythology, the tree of life is represented as a wish-fulfilling tree and is depicted in the courts of kings and deities. It was understood to be the center of the universe. It was a symbol of their gods and was associated with finding their dead and was the mysterious mountain that was in the center, even the holy center of heaven. Now, that's Hindu mythology. When we get to the book of Revelation, note at the end, we're going towards the tree, which is in the Holy of Holies, the tree of life where the leaves literally heal the nations. Think about this. So there's more. If you want to go to the show notes and look at look at some of the commentary by other scholars on this idea of the tree, I think this is significant. And to our friends who are not of our faith tradition, but are Christians, I appreciate how in so many different churches, they have a depiction of the tree right there when they take their equivalent of the sacrament. You take the Eucharist or the sacrament or whatever it is that each one of these different churches calls it, we're talking about the same thing. We're eating in remembrance of Jesus. And in many of these traditions, they look up and they see an image of the tree. Some call it the cross of Christ. Uh, Here, Peter's calling it the tree. And I think it's significant. I think that Peter knows quite well that Jesus died on a cross. Peter is told by Jesus at the end of John, hey, you are going to be crucified. But Peter chooses that word in verse 24, of a tree to describe Jesus because I think he's trying to bring to our minds the multivalent nature of this symbol. And I think to me, it reminds me of this tree is a symbol for me coming back into God's presence. I'm going towards him. And I like that symbol. I think it's beautiful. And I really love how it's the first thing in the Book of Mormon that we're really hit with, that we're being asked by the author of First Nephi, hey, think about this symbol. What does it mean? And and I love it. I love, Bryce, how many times have we talked about this where it's the most white, it's the most sweet, it's the best. 
And I love that the Book of Mormon takes that to a new level. In Alma chapter 32, he talks about planting a seed that grows into a tree, and then he identifies that that's the tree of life. So part of this imagery is that we are growing the tree of life inside us. And so the Book of Mormon picks up that imagery and just flows with it. It's beautiful imagery. Grow the tree of life inside you so that you can partake of that fruit for eternity. All those images coming together. Bryce, I love how you said this one time. You said, if you have patience and you grow the tree, what will happen? The tree will then feed you. I love that. And that's the beauty of growing this tree. Now that jumps us into chapter three, where Peter continues kind of that household code, the code of the culture. Now, be kind and be careful with these awkward words, because Peter is a disciple of Christ and believes what Christ teaches us about women and their role in the plan of salvation. But some of these verses come off a little clunky. Maybe they were tied to their culture, but they're certainly not universal today, and we need to be cautious in their application. Peter is just simply coming back to live in your culture, but be a peculiar people. So speaking of that culture, he says a couple things about women. Yeah, he does. And and they're not always easy. Uh, Verse 1, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And then, in my opinion, verse 7 is a translation that's pretty difficult. But in in this verse, in the King James, it talks about uh, the wives being a weaker vessel. I want to give a different translation to verse 7. I think this, this translation, in my opinion, is a better translation, but here it is. In the same way, brethren, living with your families according to this knowledge, giving honor to your wife as she is of a more delicate body, even as you are fellow heirs together into the grace of life, your prayers will not be cut down. Now, one of the reasons why I absolutely love verse 3, at least the way I translate it, is because of this, that you are fellow heirs together into the grace of life. You see, it's not the husband above the wife. You are heirs together. And even the King James translation does state this. So in my opinion, verse 7 in the Greek is putting women on an equal status with their husbands. But I think what's going on in verse 7 in the Greek is that the author is acknowledging that women's physical bodies are not of the same strength as a man's. Now, I know this is a hot topic in our culture, the differences between men and women, and it's caused uh, these differences and these discussions are weaponized and used in our culture to kind of pit us against each other. But all that being said, I think it's okay to acknowledge that men and women are different. And I think that the spirit of verse 7 is the author is saying to the husbands, Hey, protect your wife. And Bryce, you remember how we talked about this with Genesis and the rib and Adam? What do you see as the symbol of Eve and the rib and all of those things? Do you see that connected here? God did not take Eve from Adam's foot to be trod on, to be put down. And if Peter's acknowledging that females typically are not as strong as men, He's trying to acknowledge here that husbands and wives walk side by side. 
that if one is physically stronger than the other, it doesn't put him in a higher place. You walk side by side. She was not taken from your foot. She wasn't taken from your back. She doesn't walk behind you. She doesn't walk underneath you. She walks at your side. And if you put her anywhere else, it is transgression. God established from the very beginning that husbands and wife walk side by side. Bryce, I'm right with you on this. I love that. I love that assessment of Genesis and the rib and Eve and Adam. And I I love that. To me, this verse clearly declares that women are equal to men before God as both women and men are fellow heirs or joint heirs together. And they're following God and receiving eternal life. And a husband who failed to give honor to his wife, Timae is a big deal, this idea of honor. I mean, it's really the root of the entire conflict between Agamemnon and and, uh, Achilles when they're at Troy, if you've ever read the the story of Troy. I mean, Timae is everything. Honor is everything. And here, a husband is to give Timae to his wife. He's to give her honor. And if you don't, according to the author of 1 Peter, the husband that doesn't do this was in spiritual peril. And if he didn't repent, notice verse 12. His prayers could be jeopardized. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Remember, we're talking to husbands. Notice verse 7. We're talking to husbands, and it seems to me that this counsel is encouraging the husbands, hey, you better watch how you treat your spouse. Now that leads us to one of my favorite passages that Peter wrote. Speaking to husbands... He then in verse 8 says another B, be ye all, men, women, everyone, be ye all of one mind. Now, husbands, if you're not, if you don't hold that wife at your side, verse 13, who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? And he's saying that, yes, if you have an abusive husband, if you have an abusive king, if you have an abusive boss, if someone with authority over you is hurting you, in the end, who is that? Because your faith will rise up and you will be God's. I love this verse in Doctrine and Covenants section 38. But verily I say unto you that in time ye shall have no more kings nor rulers, for I will be your king and watch over you. And I think Peter is very delicately speaking to those who have been abused by someone stronger than they are and put them down and hurt them. But hold on to that faith. Who is he that will harm you? If ye be followers of that which is good, someday Christ will be your ruler, and he will be your king, and he will watch over you. The Doctrine and Covenants continues with, Wherefore, hear my voice and follow me, and you shall be a free people, and you shall have no laws but my laws when I am come. That's the hope of everyone with a tyrant that rules over them and puts them down. Continuing in verse 14 of 1 Peter 3, 
But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now listen to the advice he gives next. And this is not just true of someone who's being terrorized by someone else, a king, a ruler, a spouse, someone at work. This is true of all of us. Your faith needs an anchor to hold on to. And so Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I think that is one of the greatest pieces of counsel that came from Peter in this epistle. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you. What is your reason for hoping? And when that terror comes and when that tyrant troubles you, you hold on to that reason. You hold on to the hope that is in you. I have many reasons for hope. And when darkness comes and when the day turns dark, I hold on to those reasons for hope. And when questions come and I can't reconcile everything with truth, when something comes up that could shake my faith, I hold on to the reasons for my hope. So not only is he saying believe, but have a reason to believe and hold on to those reasons, that's going to get you through the darkness. That's going to get you through the night. That's such a good verse. Now, notice how that flows into even those in spirit prison were claimed and watched and delivered. Even those that were in the darkness of spirit prison, and some of them had been there for thousands of years, who held on to a hope saw that light come. And so now Peter gives us a declaration of doctrine. Verse 19 is the first one. By which he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, let me separate this into two comments. First of all, to you and I who are troubled because of an aggressor, because of someone who's inflicting pain upon us. We need to take hope that Jesus didn't forget even the spirits in prison. He went and he visited them. He remembered them. And they're going to get out of prison, every one of them. He turned the key that unlocked the prison gates and got them or will get them out of spirit prison. No one will remain in spirit prison for eternity. Therefore, no one will remain in terror. No one will remain under the tyrant's hand. God will free us all. Now, the second thing I'd like to point out is the beautiful doctrine of saving the dead. That Jesus went and started that work by preaching to the spirits in prison. Now, that is the work of the Latter-day Saints. It did not fall upon Peter's dispensation. That is our work. We are the generation that will save the dead. And I think Peter knew that. 
but he mentions the doctrine here to comfort those that are in their own level of darkness, that Jesus is coming, and someday he will free us from that prison. Since we're talking about this, let's just do 1 Peter 4, 6. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. We kind of see this idea also in John. If you remember John chapter 5, where Jesus is at the pools of Bethesda, there's this man who's waiting for the moving of the water. He can't get in the water. He's infirm. And Jesus heals him. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son of Man to have life in himself. And then if you skip down to verse 28 of John 5, Jesus says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Jesus is speaking about the dead hearing the voice of the Son of Man. Here in 1 Peter, Peter is discussing the gospel or the good news preached to them that are dead. Now, to me, I don't think we take our doctrine of preaching the gospel to the dead and the work for the dead from First and Second Peter. I don't think that's where we get our doctrine. We get it from the revelations of the restoration. Joseph Smith teaches it in Nauvoo. He teaches the saints how it's to be done. We read this in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then to me, I really love section 138. I think section 138 is the best commentary on these, where Joseph F. Smith has the vision of the redemptive work for the dead. Because the idea here is Jesus couldn't preach to everyone in spirit prison. Think about that, 4,000 years of people going into spirit prison, especially those who were there because they just didn't know the truth. How could Jesus in that brief time period preach to everyone? And the answer was, he called missionaries. He called the righteous and commissioned them to go. Now there's a delicate balance for Latter-day Saints. Some of us need to preach there. And so releases happen here because there is so much work needed there. To any of you who have lost a dear loved one, who was taken before what we would have considered the time, may you find comfort in this beautiful quotation from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. He said, On the other side of the veil, there are perhaps 70 billion people. They need the same gospel, and releases occur here to aid the Lord's work there. Each release of a righteous individual from this life is also a call to new labors. Therefore, though we miss the departed righteous so much here, hundreds may feel their touch there. One day, those hundreds will thank the bereaved for gracefully foregoing the extended association with choice individuals here in order that they could help hundreds there. In God's ecology, talent and love are never wasted. And so that's the work of the latter days. 
And it began when Jesus went into the prison and opened doors and commissioned representatives to go into the prison and start to preach. Now, the rest of chapter 4 and the end chapter 5 are, again, the idea that I know you're suffering. Peter knows they're suffering for their faith, but encourages them to be Christ-like. So you'll find these beautiful little nuggets, like, for example, in verse 8, charity. Responding with charity, having charity, shall cover the multitude of sins. In verse 12, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. This isn't unexpected. We shouldn't be surprised by trial. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. We shouldn't be surprised to have suffering in our life if the Lord we so dearly love had suffering in his. To follow Christ is an acknowledgement of, I accept that there's going to be suffering. There's going to be painful days. But I also know that because of his victory, All of my pain will be swallowed up in victory. If I am what Peter's asking me to be, I will be glad and I will be filled with exceeding joy. Now, chapter five, he's continuing his household colds, his advice to specific group. And now he's talking, verse one, to the elders which are among you just like Paul is addressing bishops and the shepherds, Peter's going to do the same thing in this final chapter of his first epistle. He says to the leaders, to parents, to all of you who shepherd, he says, feed the flock. I love verse 10, but the God of all grace, I love that phrase, the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Hang on, guys. The God of all grace is going to make everything right. That's how he ends his epistle. Now, that leads us into his second epistle, and Peter kicks it up a notch. Now, this is very much president of the church, speaking to the members of the church with all of the authority that his keys provide. The second epistle of Peter is phenomenal. Second Peter's pretty short stuff, right? It's three chapters. To me, I think that this is an attack against a group of people that are trying to subvert the directives of the church. I I see it this way. I think that a strong possibility for who this epistle is written against are a group of Christians called the Gnostics. Some of the Gnostics rejected the future coming of Jesus, and they downplayed the significance of bodily sins. It seems that this group, this second century group of Gnostics, or what are called the first century proto-Gnostics, 
are the ones that are being written against. The term knowledge or gnosis is a favorite focus of the Gnostics. And this word or a a derivation of gnosis is popping up seven times in the text. We actually break down which form of it is used, and and we put all this stuff in the show notes for those of you that are interested. But I see this as a possible uh, group of people that Peter or whoever wrote this is writing against. Now, he doesn't hold back. Like, for example, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. He does not hold back in the opposition that's out there. It's pretty caustic, yeah. I mean, especially chapter 2. Notice what it says. Verse 10, chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Uh, Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these, these false teachers as they're termed, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. I mean, if we take verse 12 to its conclusion, it seems like Peter's saying, hey, these false teachers are like animals whose only purpose is to be killed. Now, I don't think he's taking this literally, but he's using strong language. This is a polemic. It's a strong attack against these teachers. Verse 13, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. So it seems to be that these corrupt teachers are infiltrating themselves into Christian groups. He continues, verse 14, that they have eyes full of adultery. And then he says in verse 15, that they have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, time out. Okay, we could do an entire podcast just on verse 15, an entire podcast. I put a ton of stuff in the show notes on Balaam because the bottom line is if you read Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24, the author of that text and most biblical scholars attribute it to E, which is the Elohist, Balaam is actually a good guy. If you just read what's called the Balaam Paracope is what it's called, or the story of Balaam in Numbers 22, 23, 24, you read those chapters, everything Balaam is doing is legit. But then if you read the later author, the priestly author, and this is a layer that's added to the text later, according to scholarship, if you get into Numbers 25, if you get into Numbers 31, another author flips the script and Balaam is a bad guy. And for most of Jewish tradition, Balaam kind of takes on this negative connotation. He's a bad guy. He's this guy that's trying to subvert the directives of the truth seekers. He's trying to subvert the Israelites. I'm not going to sell it for this podcast. Like I said, we could do an entire podcast on this. Which we kind of did when we did Old Testament numbers. So if you want to go back and listen to our numbers 22, our, our latter numbers podcast. Check it out. Um, I, I don't even remember how much I got into it, but just know that it's there. But for the sake of this podcast, the author is using Balaam as a bad guy, and he's he's kind of lumping him in with these false teachers. And then he says that they're wells without water. 
That's verse 17. They speak swelling words of vanity. That's verse 18. They have lust of the flesh and wantonness. They promise liberty, but they themselves are servants of corruption. That's verse 19. And then verse 20 says, for if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the it's using gnosis here, it's using a version of it, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Over and over again, every time you read the the words they and them, it's all throughout verse 19, 20, 21, 22, over and over again, he's talking about an unnamed group of people that are opposing Christianity. But it seems like they are individuals that are also mixing themselves with the Christians. Right, Bryce? Well, he says back in verse 1, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And that's the problem. They're in your midst. So recognize them and don't be deceived by them. I love that he mentions in verse 17, a mist of darkness. Don't be blinded by their cunningly devised fables, their damnable heresies, their feigned words. They can be very intoxicating. They are appealing to the natural man. Do you remember what Korahor said was the reason he taught the doctrine he did? It was pleasing to the natural man. And I think Peter is acknowledging that these false teachers— are teaching very carnally pleasing doctrines. So don't be blinded. Don't let a mist of darkness come over you. And then he teaches for me a powerful truth in verse 19. Of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. Be careful, my dear saints, Peter is saying, Be careful with the false doctrines. Again, the Book of Mormon does the same thing. The Book of Mormon presents the case of the Antichrists and their appealing words as if to say, look, you're all going to face this. We're all going to face Antichrists in our life. We're going to all face those who teach false doctrine, and their doctrines can be cunning, deceiving, and intoxicating. Don't let it be a mist of darkness that blinds your eyes, because if you let them overcome you, like Korahor did, of the same, you will be brought into bondage. Because of the way Second Peter is written, with the seven different versions of Gnosis kind of woven through the text, there's a lot of talk that this letter is anti-Gnostic in its overall speech, but we really don't know the specific identity of the false teachers mentioned here in 2 Peter 2, verses 10 through 22, is not explicitly stated here. The author of 2 Peter does not provide specific names or details about these individuals or groups. But based on the context, I think we can say this, that there were false teachers that were influencing the Christians, these these heretics or these people that think Uh, ways outside of orthodoxy are influencing the church, and these movements seem to be combining Christian beliefs with other philosophical or religious ideas. Now, in my opinion, I see this happening not just here in the first century or the first couple of centuries. I see this happening all the way to Nicaea and beyond. We see this all in early Christianity. The false teachers mentioned here appear to share 
similarities with certain heretical groups known as the Gnostics, as we've talked about. Know this, that the Gnostic sects, it's, it's hard to like put a blanket over them and say they're all one thing, but some of the things that they have in common is that they see a dualistic worldview. They see this idea of a material world and a spiritual world. And frankly, as a Latter-day Saint and as a Christian, so do I. But the Gnostics, many of them saw the material world as evil and the spiritual realm as divine. And some of the Gnostics even coined this term the Demiurge, which is this creator God that created things materially. And because he did, it was like this lesser creation. Now, frankly, I'm not really into the Demiurge per se, but I also acknowledge we do live in a material world. And really, if you think about it, the spiritual world is better. I mean, the world that the Lord lives in, in the celestial realm, is better than this one. But I think the distinction between us and the Gnostics is this. As Latter-day Saints, thanks to the prophet Joseph Smith and the revelations of the Restoration, we know and understand that the material world can get exalted, that God is a material being. Now, I know that most Christians don't subscribe to that view, but I believe that the first century Christians did. I think Luke 24 is a testament to this idea that Jesus is a material being that's resurrected, but he's also a spiritual being on another plane. So I think Luke 24 kind of opens that window. Some Gnostics also downplayed the significance of bodily sins, and they advocated for esoteric spiritual knowledge as the key to salvation, hence the name Gnostic. In fact, if you've ever wondered why in English, no is spelled K-N-O-W, you're like, why is the K there? We think that's coming from the Greek because it's uh, gnosis. Gnosis is kind of how it's uh, pronounced, but it's gnosis, and it comes from this idea of knowledge. And so in my opinion, I think he is. I think he's railing against them, but he isn't calling them out specifically. Now, it's not just here where stuff like this is going on. Later, when we get to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there are other teachers that the authors of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are going to call out, and they're going to do it without naming them by name. But what we'll do when Bryce and I cover that in the podcast, we'll actually lay out some of those arguments, because if you understand the arguments behind the text, you know, what preceded the text? What issues is the text really grappling with and wrestling with? If we can understand the issues, then the text makes more sense. So I'm painting this as a possibility, but I really do think that it holds weight. So what's the antidote? Having laid out a very strong case against the enticements to pull you away from Christ and the true gospel, knowing that there are heresies, knowing that there are antichrists, knowing that there are temptations to leave the fold, what are the antidotes? That's chapter one. And I love that Peter does that first. Now, Mike and I presented the case of the negative first so that we can see the beauty of what Peter's going to do. What is my antidote in a world filled with false teachers who are trying to pull me off the path? So he starts chapter 1 with that list. Now, I like verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Remember, the theme that Peter is going for is being, becoming. It's the be verbs. 
and what we need to become is what he is. We are to gain his divine nature. We are to become what he is. So how do we do that? Verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to your knowledge temperance, and to your temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. The way we are saved is not in leaps and bounds. We don't do one incredibly good thing for which we are saved. We grow in grace, step by step. Nephi described it beautifully, that we grow line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And what Peter is here describing is that process. Add to your faith virtue. So once you've obtained one step, take that next step. That's how you're going to defeat the enemy, is constantly being in that process of growing grace for grace. Add to your faith, and then add to your virtue, and then add to your knowledge, and then add to your temperance. It's step by step. Peter says it this way, if these things be in you, And I'm going to take the liberty to kind of suggest, based on other scriptures and the pattern of other revelations, if this process be in you, we don't have to have them all right now. I don't have to be all the way to the end of the row. But if this process be in you and abound, meaning I'm going to keep going, the promise of the Book of Mormon is if it's in you and it abounds, then when you die, basically God can declare your calling election sure at that moment because you're going to reach the destination. It's assured. If the process is in me and it's abounding and I die, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. That's what Peter's talking about here. If this process be in you and abound, They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. But if you lack these things, if you're not in the process of growing grace for grace, you cannot see afar off, you'll forget, and you will return to the old sins. Therefore, and I know this is a deep subject, therefore Peter then makes a reference to the end goal. If you are in this process, however long it takes, and that's where we ought not to be concerned with the length of the process, but if you are in this process, the end result, verse 10, is that you will make your calling and election sure. In the language of verse 19, you will have the more sure word of prophecy. Now, I'm going to give you the Book of Mormon version because we can, if we're not careful, be overly concerned about this process and the end result, which I think can become unhealthy. So let me give the Book of Mormon's balance to this. After stating in 2 Nephi chapter 28 that we grow line upon line, 
precept upon precept. And we, it's, it takes a lifetime. Nephi declares in 2 Nephi chapter 31, Wherefore, you must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Notice the emphasis on pressing forward. Keep going. That's where Peter would say, get this process in you and let it abound. Move forward. Now listen to the promise. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. That's the very definition of making your calling and election sure. When the Father declares, you have made it. You will be in the celestial kingdom. Now, may I pay tribute to the dispensation head in this day, the great prophet Joseph Smith. I want to read what God said to Joseph after so many years of marching forward painfully, Joseph got to the point where the Lord declared, I am the Lord thy God and will be with thee even until the end of the world and through all eternity. For verily, I seal upon you your exaltation and prepare a throne for you in the kingdom of my father with Abraham, your father. Now the question is why? What did Joseph do to get there? Behold, I have seen your sacrifices, and I will forgive your sins. I have seen your sacrifices in obedience to that which I have told you. Go, therefore, and I make a way for your escape. As I accepted the offering of Abraham of his son Isaac. That's Doctrine and Covenant section 132, verses 49 and 50. Joseph Smith taught us this process. He grew grace for grace. And people criticized Joseph because he was imperfect or that he made mistakes. But what they don't see is that his effort to get better and to grow and to take that next step, this is the process of becoming holy in Christ. If this process be in you, then you will someday make your calling and election sure. Have faith in the promises, move forward, and trust that God will be with you all the way to the end. The entire third chapter is really focusing on that hope of the second coming of the Lord. In verse 12, it says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord. The hope for the Lord's coming wasn't necessarily the changes in the earth per se, but it was coming into his presence. But Second Peter chapter 3 does focus on the changes in the world and the elements melting with fervent heat, the Lord coming as a thief in the night, but note he's coming as a thief in the night to the world in verse 10, but not to the saints. The saints will know that the time is at hand because they're watching the times. And that really was a concern of the people that lived during this time period, and it is being addressed. Now notice how he ends. He ends the way he began, 
We don't know when Jesus is coming, therefore be ready. Verse 11 of chapter 3, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And then in verse 14, he says, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent. Both of Peter's epistles are focused on that idea. Be holy. Be in the process. Be a peculiar people. Don't be deceived by those around you who are trying to pull you off the path. Be what God wants us to be. So with that, we thank you for listening. Next week's Come Follow Me is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Jude. Now, before we go, I just want to remind you that we've been working on some new video content on our YouTube channel that you might enjoy. These new videos are in addition to our podcasts and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. So we hope that you'll check them out on our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. We'll leave a link in the description. And with that, make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.